You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Did you hear okay? Back in the back, Proverbs 27. If you guys heard the proverb that was just read, you might be thinking, uh, what's going on? What, what's happening? Proverbs 27. Did, did John just read the wrong passage? Uh, actually, John, um, no, that's the right passage. We, this, this obscure proverb, believe it or not, has everything to do with the life of our church. And my aim this morning is to, is to show you why. Proverbs 27, turn there if you can, Proverbs 27, 23 to 27. And the sermon is really simple. I just want to do three things today. The first thing I want to do is explain the meaning of these verses in Proverbs 27, 23 to 27. Explain the meaning of the verses in order to give you an image that I want you to hold on to. And then thirdly, I want to fill in that image with three realities that I'm praying to mark our church in this, this new season of our life together. We are entering a new season of our church life, and there are three things I'm asking God to do. So um, the, the outline is really simple, three things again. We got first, explanation, second, imagination, and then thirdly, we have hope, explanation, imagination, and hope. And I'd like to pray again as we get started this morning. So pray with me. Um, Father in heaven, we confess in this moment that we, we cannot praise you enough. We can't. You are greater than what we could ever fathom, and you are more worthy than what we could ever give. And we're bringing a lot of stuff in this room this morning. And so we want to say to you that regardless of our circumstances and our emotions, in this moment, as best as we know how, we want to honor you. We, we want to get in on your praise. Father, we, we worship you. We love you. We, we thank you for who you are and for all your goodness to us. And in this sermon, in this moment, by your Spirit, I ask that you would give us a greater vision of your goodness to us in the future. Do that, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're looking at Proverbs 27, verses 23 to 27. And as far as I can remember, and some of you guys correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I don't think that this church has ever heard a sermon from the book of Proverbs, okay? And so uh, this is a first for us, and without getting into a ton of detail about this book as a whole, let's just say that the book of Proverbs is like a bag of treasure, and you never exactly know what you're going to pull out of the bag, okay? Sometimes you get sage advice about how to conduct yourself. Sometimes you get fatherly warnings about things to avoid. Sometimes you just get statements like divinely inspired fortune cookies. Just want to hold on to them. So, sometimes they come in the form of poems, which is what our passage is today. One of the fascinating things, this is a little, this is a hack, a Proverbs hack, okay? One of the most fascinating things about the book of Proverbs is that we don't simply read the Proverbs to get wisdom, 
but we actually have to already have wisdom to even read the Proverbs. So you have to, in the Proverbs, you have to employ the resource that you hope to increase. So that's what I want us to do in Proverbs 27, 23 to 27. This passage is a pearl. It's a pearl of a poem that stands by itself, and there are two parts to it. There's, action, there's, a, there's uh, advice and rationale. So admonishment, advice, and then rationale. The advice is in verse 23. Verse 23, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. Then verses 24 and 27 give us the rationale. This is the why. There's a negative rationale. There's a positive rationale. Negatively, tend to your herds, verse 24, for riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations. Both of these things are blessings here, wealth and a crown. I want you to think wealth and then think secure income or a stable job. Both of those are good things. They're both gifts and they're both transitory in that they, we, we should not assume that either of those gifts will last forever. So tend your herds, tend your herds, pay attention to your flock because some of the good that you enjoy today will not always be around. That's the negative rationale. Now, positively tend to your herds because verse 25, when the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetations of the mountains is gathered. Now, listen to all the good things that come from this. The lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household and the maintenance of your girls or your milkmaidens. Now, one level, this proverb gives us a, a straightforward investment strategy for a farmer. Cold, hard cash by itself depreciates over time, verse 24. It's, it's not a self-maintaining resource. But herds, on the other hand, verse 25, Herds have a compounding value because if the billy goats are happy and well, they multiply, right? And as they multiply, they can provide clothing for you. They can uh, help you to acquire more property through their sales. And the she goats will give you milk. And so notice there's a trickle down effect here. I want you to see the result in verse 27. The result is that there will be enough goat's milk for your food. I'll be honest with you, when I read this verse several weeks ago, I started crying. And I sent David Mathis a text message and said, bro, there will be enough goat's milk for our food. True story. The word food here is a stand-in for life. It means, it means sustenance. The goat's milk here will be enough to sustain the life of the entire household, including the milk maidens who milk the goats. Everybody's covered. 
That's the rationale for why you should tend to your herds. So I want you to track with the logic here, okay? I want you to put your thinking caps on for a minute. And let's start at the end in verse 27. Verse 27, the result is that everybody is living and thriving because, verse 27, 26, the milk is enough. Because, verse 25, when the grass is gone and new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountain is gathered, See, this verse here in 25, this is important. Verse 25 is important. Another way to translate that phrase, when the grass is gone, is to say, when the grass is removed. The the idea here is that that hay has been harvested. That's, That's the point here. The grass that he's referring to is wild grass. This is... This is grass that the herd would eat, the goats would eat the grass. And so the farmer would gather the grass slash hay slash vegetation. He'd gather it all to feed the herd, and that's how all the other good would come from the herd, the clothes and the fields and enough milk. And that's how the provision of life would come. So tend to your herds because this is how it works. This this interconnected sequence of events will take place if you tend to your herds. Everybody tracking with that logic in this proverb here? Here's the thing, though, we we gotta get this. Although the farmer has responsibilities to harvest in verse 25. The whole thing here is actually dependent upon something that is entirely outside of the farmer's control. He's supposed to gather up the grass for hay, but if he uses all that hay to feed the herd today, what will he feed them in the future? You see the the problem here. If he removes the grass, the grass is removed. It's gone. That's what it means. It's used up. The grass is gone. So what's this farmer going to gather up tomorrow if all the grass is gone today? What about the future? Well, see, there must be new growth. See, See that in verse 25? New growth must appear. New grass must come. And who, who does that? Who makes the grass grow? Look, I can tell you, it's not us, okay? It's not us. God makes the grass grow. And that is the only reason why any of this works. 
If, if we had to shorten the logic of this proverb into three lines, this is what it would be. Tend your herds because God makes the grass grow. And the result is that there will be enough goat's milk for our food. Now, how do we, how do we apply that to City's Church? Like this, we, we have just come through, as a church, we have just come through a wonderful head spinning of a season. God gave us over $5.1 million in two years. Remember that? The renovations in this place, when they're finally done, are going to be incredible. Like, I can't wait for you to be able to see the space down there and all the detail. It's going to be amazing. And we've commissioned out of this church, we've sent out of this church three of my favorite people. And also pastors Josh and Kenny and Joe. I was talking about their wives first. <laughs> Erica and Milena and Jenny. Man, I love those sisters. I talked to Joe on the phone this week just enough to remember how much I miss them. Like, I just miss them all. Like, somebody's got to start sitting in these first four seats here. I, I miss them. And here's what it means. It means the grass is gone, City's Church. The grass is gone. We used it all up, and man, look, it was a harvest. Praise God for the harvest. But it's gone now. It's not here anymore. The grass is not here. That past grass is not here anymore. It's over. And that's a word that's hard to swallow. That, that's a word that I think we need, I need to sit in for a minute. Hear this. It's over. You can call it a season or a chapter. You can call it whatever you want to call it, but whatever you call it, just know that there was something about our church that is now over. It's in the past. It's gone. The grass is gone. And so what about our future? Well, new grass has to grow. And God will send us new grass. And there's going to be enough goat's milk for our food. So text that to your friend. Tell them. And this is where I want you to use your imaginations. Okay, this is where the imaginations come in. 
I want you, you to put your, you take, take your thinking cap off, put your imagination cap on, and you might have to close your eyes to do this. Okay, that's okay. Whatever you got to do. I want you to, I want you to imagine green grass. I dream about green grass all the time. I, I, I want you to imagine, don't imagine a yard. I, mean, <laughs> I want you to imagine a wide open space of rolling hills and just a, a wide open plain of green, lush, abundant, glorious grass. Imagine blue skies and green grass as far as the eye can see. Can you guys do that? Can you think that? Okay. Now all that grass that you see, all that grass is new grass. And that new grass is our future. And if you can hold that image in your minds, I want to fill in some of that image by telling you three things that I think we could call these marks. These are three marks that I pray will mark our future together. And these things are aspirational, all right? These are prayers. I've already started praying for these things every day. There are three realities that I want you to join me in praying for when it comes to the future of our church. And so here's where we are. The outline of the sermon goes like this. We started with explanation. That was kind of fun, right? Proverbs 27. Then we did imagination. And now we're talking about hope, hope. Three marks of this new season of new grass. I'm going to tell you right now where they are, then I'll slow down on each one. Three, three marks of this new grass ahead of us. Number one is deepened theology. Number two is increased surrender. Number three is multiplied joy. And I'm going to just talk about each one. First, deepened theology. Almost a decade ago, when a group of six families first began to meet, to pray and dream about this church, one question that we did not have to ask was, what do we believe? We came together from a mother church that has a rich doctrinal heritage. And that rich, solid doctrine is articulated in our leader affirmation of faith, which takes its roots back into statements of faith that go back to the 17th century, the, the 17th century English Reformation. And there are roots there that go back to the second century. The Apostles' Creed that we recited together today, that goes back to the second century. So we have deep roots in our theology. In short, this is, I, I, this is what it is. Our theology, we, we really value the Holy Scriptures as the Word of God. What the Bible says, God says. And so the truth that we learn about God in the Bible is truth that God himself tells us about himself. And of all of his wonderful truth, God tells us most loudly that he is absolutely sovereign and good and happy. 
And he is who he is in feast and famine, in celebration and suffering. And most amazing of all is that this God loves us despite us. Our best efforts cannot earn his love. Our best perception of his love cannot increase his love. God loves us because he loves us. And he he makes his love most known to us, most, most clearly to us in the death of Jesus. God has always loved us. He will always love us. And he showed us that in that, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, which means when you were your most unlovable, Christ died for us. He died for you. In this great love, the Bible tells us that Jesus saves sinners. And those, I, I think those three words is our theology in a nutshell. Jesus does not merely meet sinners halfway and expect them to do the rest. Jesus does not help sinners save themselves. Jesus saves sinners. And a lot of us in this room would probably ascribe to that theology. A lot of us would say that we agree with that. But we need to believe it deeper. I think deeper is the perfect word here, deeper. And when I say deeper, I I, I mean deeper for the same reasons that pastor and writer Dane Ortland explains in his book that's titled Deeper. Pastor Dane, in his book Deeper, he says that a lot of times when we think about growth in the Christian life, we think in terms of three areas, behavior improvement, intellectual addition, emotional experience. Now, each of those three things are part of the Christian life. They all matter. And so you could see how we would think that if we're going to grow, we need to be improving and adding and experiencing. We we think that we need to go out and get more of those things, try harder, do better, all that. But see, the idea of deepening is different because deepening implies that you already have what you need. See? You don't need extras so much as you need congruence. You need truth to settle down and sink in. So a deepened theology intends to bring what we do and say and feel into line with what we already know. Will we end up changing the way we act in certain ways? Yes. Will we learn new truths about God that we've not thought about before? Of course. Will we have a richer, more sincere experience of God? I hope so. Just. We're not, we're not anti-experience, okay? I know for a lot of Reform-type folks, when we start talking about experience, we get a little nervous, okay? 
But look, here's the deal. Because we believe God is real, and we have a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we can experience Him. We should experience Him. You know, you can talk to God. You can hear God talk to you. I want you to experience God. We want to experience God. But see, here's the thing. When it comes to behavior, when it comes to intellect, when it comes to experience, we are not pursuing any of those things in themselves. We pursue God. Our prayer is give me God, remember? As for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all his works. Church, we, we want more of God, okay? We want to go deeper with God. That's, this matters to me more than anything else. So hear this part. We want to go deeper with God. And so as you imagine the new grass, I hope you still can hold that. In your, if you're, as you're looking at the new grass, in the details include a deep in theology. And practically a deep in theology is the primary aim of what we're calling the Cities Institute and our Wednesday gatherings that are coming up. If you've not heard about it yet, starting on Wednesday, September 20th, for a total of six Wednesdays this fall, we're gathering the whole church together on Wednesday evenings for a big meal together and fellowship. There's going to be teaching and discussion. We're going to have stuff for the little kids, for students, for adults. We're going to have something for everybody. And the aim is a deepened theology. And so pray for and expect a deepened theology as part of this new grass. Second thing, increased surrender. Now, increased surrender is actually inseparable from a deepened theology. This mark describes what we do as we encounter a deeper understanding of who God is. It means that as we go deeper with God, we give more of ourselves to God. And I'm saying, I'm calling it increased surrender, but another way to say it is that we need to increase the decrease of ourselves. You guys remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we want. We want more of Jesus leading our lives, not us. It's a legit, like Jesus take the wheel, legit, man. Like that's what we want, okay? <laughs> but see, here's the thing with that. We, we actually can't surrender to God more of ourselves unless we come to understand more of ourselves. All right, hang with me here, okay? We can't decrease what we don't know, which means that an important part of increased surrender is self-understanding. We have to take ownership of our stories. I've heard it said before that we can only surrender as much as we know about ourselves to as much as we know about God. And I love that sentence. Because it means that 
A deepened knowledge of God has to include a deepened knowledge of ourselves. Both of these things go together as the recipe for true wisdom, and that is what makes us grow in Christ from the heart. I recently read a book uh, by a Christian therapist who has worked with, I mean, countless Christians over the years. And he's worked with them to help them get through uh, basically the wreckage of bad decisions they've made. And in all of his experience of working with these Christians and pastors who've made a mess of their lives, in his experience, he says that none of the Christians he worked with, none of those Christians made ruinous choices because of lack of facts about God. Actually, he said, they knew a lot of truth about God. They knew a lot of facts. But they didn't know how to apply the truth to themselves because they didn't know themselves. And so I'm telling you that we must, we must learn to take ownership of our stories. And this is what that means. We must learn to take ownership of our particular brokenness and our particular idiocy, stupidity. We're all centered. We're, we're all a mess, okay? You, got, you get that? We need to be saved. We have to come to grips with our brokenness and our stupidity because, here's the thing, because God has particular grace for you in all of that. When, when God saves us, he doesn't just stamp us as saved and toss us in the crowd. But he saves you. You. God saves everything about you. And yes, of course, you become part of a people. You become part of a community. You become part of a family. And all at the same time, God knows your name. God knows your heart. God knows how many hairs are on your head, even your eyebrows, which is amazing that Jesus tells us this in the Gospels. God knows all of you. He wants all of you. He intends to save all of you. And so we have to understand who we are to give more of ourselves to Him. This is what I mean by increased surrender. And, and what does this look like? What does increased surrender look like for us? Well, two practical things, discipling relationships and corporate prayer. When it comes to discipling relationships, we value them so much in our church that we have a structure set up to keep them always in view. They're called community groups. And we have about 23 and counting of these things scattered across the metro. And, and we want to encourage everyone to plug into these groups because the goal of these groups is mutual discipleship. 
We're learning together in these groups how to follow Jesus in everyday life, open-hearted to God and others. And I'll be honest with you, it's, it can, it's weird sometimes, okay? Just, it's okay though, all right? We believe that Jesus is real, and we want to be ourselves real with one another. So be in discipling relationships. The second thing, practical thing, is corporate prayer. Our church has a lot of praying people. That's the only way that we could be where we are. We have a lot of members who pray, but we haven't done enough of those members praying together. But it is happening, okay? Every third Sunday before this service, Several of us meet right over here in this room, and we pray for 40 minutes before the service. And I want to see this thing just grow. I just want to see it go bananas. I want, to, I want us to start having just prayer times. I want it just to leak out. I want us to be a, like a praying people together, okay? Together, praying together. And I want us to get together, and I want us not just to ask God for things. I don't want us just to seek God's hand. I want us to seek God's face. I want us to come together and plead for a deepening of our understanding of God. And I want us to pray like Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, which means not my kingdom. Not cities, churches, kingdom, God's kingdom. And see, what happens is when a corporate body begins to pray like that, your kingdom come, God's kingdom come, that means corporate surrender. That's what that is. And so we're going to pray like that. And I want us to pray like that. That's part of the new grass, all right? Look at the, you hold the new grass. That's the new grass. Increase surrender. Deepening theology, deepen theology, increase surrender. Last thing, and we're done multiplied joy. We cannot remind ourselves enough that joy is deeper than the universe. You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore, Psalm 16, 11. I hope you know that if you could peel back reality, just if you could see what's behind everything that there is, what you would find there is joy. Joy. And when I say joy, I, I, I want you to think joy. Okay, sometimes... I, you know, we can be so careful to qualify what we mean by joy. We, we call it, you know, serious joy or, you know, poker face joy or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. Like, and, I, and we do, I get why we do that. We do that because we, 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 we want to be so, we want to make sure people know that what we're talking about is not cheap, right? I, mean, I get it. But I'm convinced that the best way that we clarify what we mean by joy is not by our adjectives, but by our action. We, stop worrying about qualifying joy. What we need is manifest joy. Manifest joy. Like in the story of the prodigal son. You guys know the story of the prodigal son. Jesus tells this story in Luke 15. And look, this story, it never gets old, all right? I'm going to tell it to you. You know how it goes. Jesus tells us about this. There was a son, 
And, and this son took all of his inheritance money, all of his life savings, and, and, and he, he abandoned his family. He left his home and he traveled the world and he squandered everything that he had on reckless living. What an idiot, you know? Just like us, okay? He wasted it all. And he was a long ways from home. He was in the far country. And he had ruined his life until he finally comes to himself and he thought, this is a great moment in the story, he thought while he was eating with the pigs, he thought, I guess I'll go back home now. And maybe, just maybe my dad would at least let me be a servant in his household. And so the son begins to walk home. And Jesus tells us, that as the sun was still a long ways off, down the road, the father sees the sun at a distance. And do you remember what the father did? What did he do, remember? He had compassion on this prodigal. And, and the father He's at a distance. The father runs to him. And, and that was a most undignified thing to do for a first century CEO, okay? But that's what he did. He runs to his son, tattered and beaten, reckless, a fool. He runs to his son and he embraces his son and he kisses his son and his son says to him, Dad, I screwed up. It's all gone. I wasted it all. I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I'm not worthy. Make me a servant. And his, his dad put the best robe on him. Remember? And he puts a finger, uh, puts a ring on his finger. And do you remember what the father did? He threw a party. You hear that? He threw a party. Because, because, Luke 15, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 self-righteous cynical prigs. Is that how the verse goes? <laughs> right. There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And so he threw a party, and it was a real party, okay? It was a, there was, there was music, and there was dancing, and there was merrymaking, and there was joy so real. There was joy so real that you could see it. It was manifest joy. And in fact, it was such manifest joy that it became controversial joy. Because remember, the older son, he didn't like it. Remember, he heard it. He heard it. He didn't like all this manifest joy. He didn't like the party, but the Father said to him, as the Father says to us, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost, but now is found, and so we are going to party. Won't you come party with us? See, that's the way to think about our mission right there. That's our mission. 
It starts here. It starts with joy. We want to have real manifest joy. And then we want to invite other people into that joy, not theoretically, but truly. Cities Church, we want to be a happy people, a glad-hearted, merry, cheerful, happy people. We want to be a people who can sing their lungs out in worship and drink an ice-cold sweet tea to the glory of God. We want to be a people who value fellowship in the local church and achieve excellence in their vocations, whether you are a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker or an orthopedic surgeon, or an attorney, or an athlete, or an educator, or an engineer, or salesman, or artist, or dentist, or therapist, or scientist, all of them, okay? Whatever it is that you do, we want to do it as unto the Lord. We want to rest and work as unto the Lord. We want to be a people who enjoy meditating and studying God's Word and a people who have babies, babies everywhere. (laughs) We want to be a people who go and send missionaries near and far and who are the kind of parents who read their kids' stories at bedtime about wild things. And I know that there are a hundred hard things going on. Some of us currently are or will be in the valley of suffering, but we are never alone. And God is God, and He is good, and we have His joy down deep in our souls, His joy down deep in our souls. And if you're around us, you can see it. (laughs) You can see it. It is manifest joy, real joy. Won't you come party with us? Real joy, see can't help but be multiplied joy. You can't contain, you can't contain real joy, it multiplies. And so make that part of the new grass. Practically, what does this mean? It means that we're for real about joy, and we're for real about commissioning people out of this church to multiply that joy. We're going to work on another church plant in 2024. And we're going to work on another church plant in 2025. And we're going to work on another church plant as long as we can, because we believe in multiplying joy. And we're launching a new global missions pathway in the hopes of sending some of you to the unreached peoples of this world who have never heard the name of Jesus. Multiply joy. We're going to do it. We're going to multiply joy. The old grass is gone. It's over. The old grass is gone. New grass is growing. Deep in theology, increased surrender, multiplied joy. And there will be enough goat's milk for our food.
And that's what brings us to the table. And you might be thinking, how in the world does that bring us to the table? Well, it's because this is a table of thanksgiving. At this table, we remember the death of Jesus for us, and we give thanks to him for his death. And also we give thanks to him for all the grace that comes to us through his death. Every good that we have, church, every good that we've had in the past, every good that we will have in the future, it all comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we come to this table to give him thanks. And so if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, if you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus, if you put your faith in Jesus, we invite you to join us now. Let's eat and drink together. Let's adore Jesus. Let's come to the party. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.